This is an AMI podcast. I'm Juhita Gupta, and this is The Pulse. For a long time in mainstream film and television, facial differences or disability in general stood in for villainy. Whether it was Lord Voldemort in Harry Potter or Scar in The Lion King, to look different was to signify wickedness. These representations are gradually being challenged by film critics within the disability community. There is growing recognition that these stereotypes are harmful to real people who live with facial differences and disability. Moreover, filmmakers need to face the facts when it comes to how disability and difference are represented on screen. Because much like race, disability has been used as a lazy shortcut to signify social deviance. Only then, once we transcend these stereotypes, can stories be creatively reimagined and redeployed. Today, we discuss disability representation in animated cinema. It's time to put your finger on the pulse. Well, hello and welcome to The Pulse on AMI-audio. I'm Joetha Gupta and my guest today is Jessica Gibson. Jessica Gibson is a third-year PhD researcher at the Center for Research on Education and Social Justice in the Department of Education at the University of York in England. Her research analysis looks at the representation of disability in Disney animated films. And she joins us, of course, from York today. Hello and welcome to the program. Thanks for talking to us today. Hi, thanks for having me. I read a wonderful article that you wrote for the conversation. It's where I get a lot of my guests on the program. And you talked about the fact that we needed to look into the representation of facial differences in the villains in the James Bond films. Tell me a little bit about that article and how prevalent facial differences were in the James Bond films and how those facial differences were being used. Yeah, it's really interesting because when you look more closely at James Bond films in particular, you see that every villain has some sort of facial difference, whereas the hero doesn't. And that's been used not just in James Bond films, but more generally in literature and film. And it's so ingrained in our culture that we just don't really recognise it unless we think about it and stop and actually... Mm particularly look at these representations. So when I was doing my research and looking at what other people have said about film and about literature, it came across me that James Bond does it so often. And then obviously the film has recently came out, No Time to Die. Um, And within that film, they have three villains that all have some sort of disfigurement. And that is used to signify how evil they are and to show that they're wicked Whereas James Bond himself is able-bodied, has no disfigurement, even though he's doing all of these fight scenes. If they are disfigured in some way, the hero, they always overcome it or are fixed to show that normalcy is then brought back into picture. So I thought it was really interesting. 
It is very interesting. What got you thinking about it? Did your analysis begin with James Bond or was it something even further back, going going back to your childhood that got you thinking about this issue? I think it's more about what I've been reading in my studies. So looking at it mm-hmm. through disability studies, um, a lot of people have spoke about it in terms of uh, using disability studies to look at film. And they've pointed out for throughout the history of film and then also going back to literature and fairy tales that this has always been something that they've done and so when I've looked more into it it's it's there it's just not many people are actually critically analyzing it. Mm. I read a the very famous essay by the late Bell Hooks about the oppositional gaze. Do you think that people with disabilities when we go to the cinema have developed that kind of a, a critical spectatorship when it comes to viewing James Bond and thinking about the representation of disability in James Bond or any of those Disney films that we talked about. After all, you know, even as people with disabilities, we do go uh, to the cinema and we provide our patronage. So how developed is our critical thinking, you know, in terms of the disability community when it comes to considering the representations or the faulty representations of disability in cinema? Yeah, I think it's a difficult one because, like I've said, it's so ingrained in our culture in the way that a lot of people don't recognise it or they they recognise it in a way that they just expect that to be how they're presented, how disability is represented. So in terms of like villainy, they just expect that the villain looks that way because they're evil and that's just what they expect. And so they don't think about it in any other way or that's just because that's what they're expecting to see. And that's the same with um, Disney in terms of what I've looked at, and like Captain Hook and Scar, like they're even named after their own disability. Mm-hmm. And it's just, that's just expected and just overlooked because of that. You know, I was talking in my opening monologue about Voldemort and Harry Potter. And if you, and you know, many of us have now read the books and seen the films. We know that Voldemort grew up in an orphanage and was didn't have any family, didn't have the best childhood, and really takes it out on everybody around him. How much does this sort of revenge fantasy uh, or this need to get even, feeling that you've been wronged somehow and needing to set the set the record straight, how much does that come into play when we think about the representation of disability in film? Is it a big is it a big consideration? I think it's getting better in terms of if they're providing a backstory, then at least there's some kind of depth to the character. But if there isn't then you just see an an evil character that has a disability you're associating those two things and that's it whereas at least a backstory can explain like some sort of reason behind their behavior because it might not be because they have that disability that's the only reason um because I've been looking at that in terms of the female villains in Disney how a lot Mm. of them are portrayed as mentally ill mad crazy and that's just the way that they're presented. But some of them more, mm-hmm. uh, so like Maleficent and Cruella, for example, mm. are just crazy women and their, the, their actions are because of the way that they behave. But then Disney have released the live action remix of those films and the way that they're addressing it is going 
giving them more of a backstory to kind of show the upbringing and linking it more to mental health, which mm-hmm. I think is a step in the right direction in terms of showing not just, a, in quotations, crazy woman, but at least showing some backstory to why someone might behave in this way. That's such an interesting point. Do you think there's a difference in the ways in which, apart from the use of facial disfigurement and, and the use of disability as a trope, do you think there is a difference between the, the ways in which men and women are treated differently when they're cast uh, as an antagonist in in a film or television series? Yeah, I think um, from my research in Disney, obviously it's more animated portrayals, but there seems to be a difference in terms of males have like physical impairments physical disfigurements um, missing limbs for example whereas women are more characterized by their appearance and their mental state so showing kind of signs of madness and um, showing an expectation for the way they look whereas the men have more physical differences um, which I think is also very interesting. Who is generally more critical of this portrayal of disability and this correlation between disability and villainy? Is it is it that the majority of the criticism is coming from within the disability community or have filmmakers and film critics in the mainstream woken up to this reality? No, I don't think many people have woken up to it, which is why it's important to like explain it more in this kind of realm because um, it it gets overlooked so much. Um, There's so much in the disability community and disability studies that are kind of given a voice to it. One thing I found when I was writing this article, like a charity called Changing Faces, who did a campaign called I'm Not Your Villain to show that people with uh, visible differences on screen can be other than the villain. Um, And from that, the BFI, which is the British Film Institute, said that they wouldn't cast any more um, representations that featured someone with a facial difference as as the villain in their films. So that obviously is a step in the right direction, which is good, but there still needs to be a lot to change. So if there's this movement being made towards adjusting what expectations one might have of an on-screen representation of a villain. Do you come up against the argument? Because I often hear this when when we talk about sports, where people don't want to engage with the political issues. They just want to be entertained. It's a Disney film. It's not the end of the world. Uh, I wonder if, you know, what response you you would have for someone who said that from their point of view, it doesn't matter whether a villain has a facial difference or is it disfigured in any way, because at the end of the day, it's just entertainment and they're just going in there to switch off from reality. And and they don't want to think through while they're enjoying their movie or watching a TV show about the implications of what they're seeing on screen. What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, I've heard this a lot. And I think even if they don't think that it's having an impact, it does, because especially something like this that is continuously used as a trope throughout film and literature, that's ingrained. So without them even realising, they expect to see disability in that way. 
because that's what they've seen throughout history. Yeah, so it's, it's difficult to then change their mind. Do you think that an animated film can be a good place to start those conversations? Um, you know, I have a friend who had a young daughter and she really tried to have some conversations with varying degrees of success about the Disney princess and how not all women need to aspire to be a Disney princess. Do you think that film then opens up spaces to have conversations about meaningful representation of disability um, or even to challenge people on their preconceptions of disability? Are there things that we can achieve with an animated film that we maybe can't achieve at an academic conference? Yeah, definitely. And especially with the Disney films, because it's like majority of kids watching them. So mm. you can open up that conversation when they're younger and when they're, they're what they're seeing on the screen, you can have that discussion before there's any kind of ideas set in stone in their mind. So you can have those conversations straight away. And with Disney and Disney Plus, for example, all of the like films are available. So you can watch Snow White and all the older films as well as the more current ones and have that conversation on why these representations might be outdated or why this princess looks this way, for example. And I think that's really useful because you're having that conversation with your children, you can have it with your friends and your family and open up that conversation. So what about you then? I mean, these these Disney films are so much a part of our culture and our zeitgeist. I think we've all grown up watching them. Was there a moment of reckoning that you had to grapple with uh, when you did all this reading for your, for your course and you realized uh, that some of these representations weren't quite as innocent as they seem at first glance? Uh, what was that journey like for you? Yeah, so I've, I've grew up with Disney as well and... Um... I'm a big fan of the theme parks. And then more recently, I've been going to the theme parks with my mum who uses a wheelchair. So then that's opened up another layer of like accessing the parks with a disability, which I found like it's interesting in terms of seeing how accessible they are when also thinking about their representations. When I was younger, I think like most people, I didn't have privilege to understand any further what was seen on the screen than it being a Disney film so then going back after studying disability studies opened up my eyes to so many different representations and also just Disney studies in general is becoming quite a big thing in terms of analyzing Disney for what it is a multinational company and what they're doing with their products so looking back at disability as well as gender and race on what they've done in the past and then what they're doing now to kind of improve those representations in any way they can so it, it's definitely been a journey it's it's interesting to come at it in a way of being a fan but also being critical um but I feel like you have to be a fan in some way to at least watch all of the films and analyze them in in a very thorough way that I've done <laughs> Yeah, no, for sure. You must have seen a lot of films. So have you noticed any patterns then? I mean, apart from the, what you've, you've described, which is the, the equating of facial disfigurement with villainy, are there other tropes or other patterns that you've noticed in these Disney films that have made you reevaluate them from a disability perspective? Well, overall, there's a lot more representation than I first realized, even if it is more just 
aspects of impairment that you just don't think about or many people don't think about. And then in terms of more like disability aspects in terms of even like I've read an article recently that's like rereading Beauty and the Beast in terms of the transformation of the beast and how Belle falls in love with the beast, but then he resorts back to being human, which I find really interesting. And then more of the recent films in terms of Frozen and Wreck-It Ralph, I find interesting in that um, Elsa and Vanellope both have magical powers, but they can be encoded as disability in the way that they're treated and they, they're like implicit representations, but they then overcome them to then mm. live with their disabilities. That comes up a lot, this idea that you have to overcome your disability in some way or transcend it in some way. Or yeah. is it that the people who are relegated to villains are people who have not or cannot or will not overcome their disabilities? Does that tend to be something that is that a subtext in some of these films as well? That if you have a disability, but you're not looking to overcome it or redeem yourself in any way or, you know, live with the disability in a productive way, then you are automatically abnormal and you are villainous and a bit of an, a, an, a social outlier. Yeah, so it's the association of if you're not ex you're not meeting the expectation of the normalcy that society, the film requires, then you're not the hero. Um, so you're not meeting those expectations of being, in quotations, normal, um, able-bodied, that sort of thing. That if you don't meet that, then you're either like the sidekick, the villain, that sort of thing. I'm Joitha Gupta, and my guest today is Jessica Gibson from the University of York. We're talking about some of Jessica's research into the representations of disability and facial disfigurement in mainstream Disney animated films. Just before we wrap up, I, I did want to get a sense, Jessica, about what you've observed about the accessibility of theme parks. You mentioned you'd gone to a, a number of theme parks with your mother, who is in a wheelchair. How accessible are they, really? Surprisingly, um, I find Disney really accessible and going without a wheelchair, without access needs um, to begin with when I was younger, just wouldn't think of it. But then when I went using a wheelchair with my mum, we realised how accessible it was and how much they do to provide not just wheelchair users, but also quite a wide range of impairments. In the few minutes that we have left, I want to come back to our conversation about disability and disfigurement in Disney animated films. What's the future looking like for you? So if you think about all we've talked about in our preceding long conversation about the ways in which disability has been equated with abnormality and with deviance, where... Where do we go from here? Is it even possible to take films in a different direction? And how much willingness is there to go in a different direction when it comes to on-screen representations of disability? I think there's definitely a need for on-screen representation that doesn't require additional reading or additional lens mm -hmm. to understand the representation. So when I spoke about Elsa and Vanellope, I'm reading into that because it's a disability that's encoded within a magical ability. 
Mm-hmm. And yes, I can say it is a representation of disability, but it's not a representation that you see on screen as a disability like you see in real life. Mm-hmm. And I know these are Disney films, so you have to take it with a pinch of salt, but a bit more progressive would be good because we're seeing it with the way that the princesses are changing, for example, in terms of race um, and ethnicity is becoming a lot more inclusive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's definitely possible and it would be great to see a character, particularly a princess, because they're one of the most popular with a disability that is just existing as a disability. It's not requiring that reading or used for a purpose other than being part of who they are. Well, Jessica, you know, how much of this comes down to a desire for normalcy uh, for people and for that escapism that I talked about earlier? Do you think that we can continue to have fulfill those escapist fantasies that we often associated with film while also uh, making sure that our representations are uh, realistic and progressive? Yeah, I think we can. I think including disability isn't taken away from the escapism, the fantasy that we enjoy when we watch films. It's just making sure that certain representations are correct or realistic or at least not completely different to how they should be in terms of disability because that's always the case that it's either completely different or not existing. It just, but many people in the disability community just want it to be there. It doesn't need to be anything else. And so just to be there won't take away from the cinematic experience. Well, Jessica, thank you very much for talking to us today. It was a really enlightening conversation. It was great to have you on the program. Thank you very much. Jessica Gibson is a third year PhD researcher at the Center for Research on Education and Social Justice at the Department of Education at the University of York. Her research analysis looks at the representation of disability and facial difference in Disney animated films. That's all the time we have for today's show, but I hope you'll check out our podcast on all available podcast platforms. Our technical producer is Nasreen Abdul-Majid and Andy Frank is the manager for AMI-audio. Thanks for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day. This was an AMI podcast. For more accessible media, visit AMI.ca.